Beloved, you know where to turn. Romans chapter 8. We are going to once again be in this marvelous section, Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Uh, and this will be our third uh, sermon uh, in this text. We first tried to unpack uh, the doctrine of spiritual adoption, giving some a general overview and principles uh, of the doctrine of spiritual adoption. And then last week, we looked at some of the ways that uh, assurance is undermined because adoption, the, 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 the teaching on us possessing the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption as sons is meant to, it's intended by God to strengthen assurance. But there are some things, of course, that can undermine assurance. And we tried to deal with those last week. And, and in the light of adoption, spiritual adoption, respond to those things that undermine uh, assurance and seek to uh, strengthen that assurance. Uh, this this morning, we come uh, once again to this section to deal with some of the uh, important words and, and clauses and phrases that are found uh, in uh, this text, which help us, again, to deepen our understanding of our standing with God as His adopted sons. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll uh, look at verses 14 through 17, but we'll, we'll start uh, in verse 12 in the reading. Please hear the Word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that You would illumine our hearts and minds by Your Spirit, that we would understand Your Word, that we would believe Your Word, that we would respond to your word by faith and that we would obey your word and ultimately that we would look to Christ alone for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Slavery was as common for the first century Greco-Roman world as our computers and cell phones in our own. It was ubiquitous. Slavery was everywhere. It touched every facet of society from households to agriculture to manufacturing to construction to the military. Slavery was a part of everyday life. Slavery was a part of everyday life. Scholars in the ancient world estimate that during Paul's time, one in three people were slaves in Italy, one in three. And across the Roman Empire, one in five were slaves. Many were enslaved after military defeats to Rome. Others were victims of the slave trade or were the children of slaves, thus becoming slaves by birth. As wicked as slavery was and as wicked as slavery is, it was a normal 
and accepted practice among the ruling classes in first century Rome, the context in which the Apostle Paul ministered. And it's important to note that with these high percentages of slaves in Italy and across the empire, that no small number of early Christians would have been slaves or had been formally enslaved. We see evidence of this sprinkled all throughout the New Testament, don't we? Not least in the, uh, the book of Philemon, uh, but we see it in other places, like Paul's letter to the Galatians, for instance. In chapter 3 and verse 28, Paul encourages Christian unity in the church by declaring that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, no matter what one's ethnicity or gender or station in life, Christian believers are one in Christ. Amen? Christian believers are one in Christ, parts of the same body, baptized into the same spirit, and members of the same household of faith. The individualistic nature of broad American evangelicalism is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. We ought to consider more and more the corporate identity of the church, that we are members of a body, the body of Christ. But it's not just in Galatians that Paul employs the metaphor of slavery. He uses it very often, especially in the book of Romans. And we've seen this. And rightly so does he use this metaphor. These early Christians understood the reality and hardship of slavery. Many of them, as I mentioned earlier, would have known firsthand the fear and the misery associated with slavery. And so Paul employs the slavery metaphor to instruct God's people about the nature of their freedom and salvation in Christ and the new life that they have in Him. Remember back in chapter 6 when Paul writes that they used, they used to be slaves of sin, but now by God's grace, they've been set free from sin. They were slaves of sin, now they've been set free from sin. Again, Paul writes, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. And again in chapter 7 and verse 23, he writes of being held captive by the law. Again and again, the apostle employs the slavery metaphor in order to press home the important aspects of the believer's freedom and identity in Christ. And he tells them who they were before he tells them who they are. He tells them what they've been delivered from, and then he tells them what they've been brought into. And so he says they were slaves of sin and death. They were slaves of sin and death, that is, under sin's dominion, in bondage to its power and obeying its promptings, the wages of which is death. They were slaves of sin and death. Secondly, they were slaves under the law. 
That is, under that forbidding master whose impossible and crushing demands could never provide a way of salvation. If you ask the typical person walking down the street, even who professes to be a Christian, and you say, do you believe God will let you into heaven? They will respond by saying, well, yes. And then, and then uh, the next question is, well, why do you think God will let you into heaven? They'll say, because I've lived a pretty good life. This is the way that people think. But the, the, the reason why they would even say something like that is because they don't understand that the demands and the standards of the law are perfection. And if that's all you've got as a means to heaven, as a way to heaven, you don't have much because we miserably fail to keep that law. So that law, it's, it, it, we, the Bible describes us as slaves under the law apart from Christ because the law is that forbidding master whose impossible and crushing demands can never provide a way of salvation, but only a way of condemnation and shame and judgment. Slaves of sin and death, slaves under the law, and slaves of the flesh. Slaves of the flesh, that's the, the other thing the Bible speaks of. We are slaves of the flesh outside of Christ. What is the flesh? What is the flesh? It's indwelling sin and all of its motions. John Murray defines the flesh as that, quote, complex of sinful desire, motive, affection, propension, principle, and purpose. And to live after the flesh is to be governed and directed by that complex. To be governed and directed by that complex. Dear ones, what God, through Paul, wants these early Christians in Rome to understand and wants us to understand here this morning in 21st century Mount Pleasant, is that while we were once slaves of sin and death, under the dominion of the law as an impossible means of salvation, and in bondage and slavery to the sinful flesh, Christ has set us free. Christ has set you free if you are in Christ. You who are struggling with the patterns of sin, you who are struggling with doubt and despair, you who feel like you're feeling beat down by the pressures and temptations of the world, please hear this. Christ has set you free. You are no longer in bondage and enslaved to, this, to sin and death and the flesh and the law. You've been set free. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. You are no longer by nature a condemned child of wrath. You are by grace a redeemed child of God. You are no longer in bondage to or controlled by the spirit of this wretched age. No, you've been set free. You are sons being led by the spirit of God leading you to your eternal home in the age to come. For as Paul writes in Romans 8, 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And dear ones, here we are meant to learn what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. We're not just saved from something, sin, hell, and death, Satan. We're saved to something that is to a life of sonship, to an inheritance, to grace and glory. You see, here we are meant to further grasp the height 
the depth, the width, and the length of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Here in this text, we are meant to understand and appropriate three things. And these are my three headings for this morning, if you are taking notes. Here in this text, we are meant to understand and appropriate three things, things we've touched upon in the prior two messages, but we will dig down deeper in this morning. That is the freedom and privilege of sons, the freedom and privilege of sons. We are to understand and appropriate three things, the freedom and privilege of sons, secondly, the conviction of sons, and thirdly, the inheritance of sons. The freedom and privilege of sons, the conviction of sons, and the inheritance of sons. By the way, some might wonder, why is it that the Bible only speaks of sons and not of daughters? Where are there other places we could turn? But the focus here on sons is because who received the inheritance in the first century? The sons. And to reinforce the fact that the inheritance is received by all of God's people, he calls all of us sons. You know, they'd be like me complaining. Why is the church called the bride of Christ? Can't we have another scripture in there that calls it the, uh, the groom? It's a metaphor. And it's meant to reinforce eternal, precious truths about our salvation. And so you, daughters of the king, are not denied by this in, from this inheritance. You are given this inheritance, and you are called sons of God, as it were, as the inheritors of all that is ours in Christ. And so these are my three headings for this morning as we continue to unpack these gospel-saturated verses, the freedom and privilege of sons, the conviction of sons, and the inheritance of sons. Let's begin with the freedom and privilege of sons, even as Paul once again employs this slavery metaphor as a way to, uh, to contrast our new identity as sons, a way of contrast to our new identity as sons. Look with me again at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You say, now that sounds glorious. But what does it mean? What does it mean? What is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching us here? Well, he's saying, first of all, that the spirit the Roman believers received, by God's grace, is not a spirit of slavery or bondage in which they fall back into a life of servile fear, like the life that they lived before knowing Christ. Things are different now. They are no longer shackled with the heavy and burdensome chains of guilt, fear, shame, and condemnation. And isn't it true that sometimes Christians live with this kind of servile fear? It's as if they're going over to the chains which have been uh, removed from them by Christ and they're trying to put them back on or allowing something else, the flesh or Satan, to put them back on. On. Things are different now, though, for God's children. Sometimes we forget that, which is why Paul is teaching God's people these points. You see, we are no longer shackled with the heavy and burdensome chains of guilt, fear, shame, and condemnation. Being indwelt and led by the spirit of adoption, 
does not, as John Murray explains, quote, have the effect of a relapse into that slavish fear which characterized the pre-Christian state. And so if you are living in fear and living in guilt and sensing and feeling the condemnation of God, it means that you are acting and living outside of your new nature. You are not being who you are in Christ. In other words, believers are not given the Spirit only to fall back into a fear-filled life. That is, a life of fearing God's condemnation and judgment. A life of fearing failure. A life of fearing others. With the result of withholding love, grace, and forgiveness from them. A life of fearing to let go of perceived Control. I say perceived because no one really has control when they're trying to be controlling. It's perceived because God is the sovereign king. Amen? But fear drives the desire to be controlling and not loving. And so we have this life of fear driving perceived control, or a life of fearing the disapproval of God and others, a life where you're living and always feeling like you're under God's disapproval and displeasure and anger and condemnation, and a life of fearing the disapproval of others, and finally, a life of fearing death, a life of fearing Death And on we could go. Dear ones, we did not receive from God a spirit of slavish fear to fall back into a life of fear, a life of cowering unbelief. No, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love. And of self-control. Not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And again, in 1 John 4, 16 through 19, we read, quote, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now listen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, what? Casts out fear. Casts out fear. For fear, John writes, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear is at the root of so many of our sins. Fear is at the root of being controlling. Fear is at the root of anger. Fear is at the root of distrust. Fear is is that which the world lives under, which is why the world looks as it does today. But We as Christians are not to live by fear. We are to live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and died for us. We are sons in the Son. 
not living a life of fear, the fear of condemnation, shame, and punishment. Quite the contrary. The spirit we've received is the spirit of adoption as sons, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. What a difference. Many of you will know that Abba is an Aramaic term that highlights the closeness of the relationship that we have with God the Father through our union with Christ. No longer condemned, but everlastingly loved and accepted into the family of God, the believer is ineffably privileged. Now listen, the believer is ineffably privileged to approach God even as Christ does. Even as Christ himself would That is, with uninhibited love, intimacy, and boldness. Let that sink in for a minute, dear ones. Because we are united to Christ and indwelt by the spirit of adoption, we have the same right and privilege to approach God as Christ does. That is, to approach Him as our Father, as our Abba, Father, as our dearest Father, we approach Him in prayer. Is that the way you think about your standing with God? Is that the way you think about your standing with God, your relationship with Him? Or are you still living in fear? Are you treating God as one that you have this servile fear and feel His condemnation and, and the guilt and the judgment rather than His grace and His welcome? into his loving and forgiving arms. Now, I must pause here for a moment and say that if you do not know Christ, if you do not know Christ and all you see in your life are the patterns of servile fear and of being chained to sin, and you're really, you really are trying to find salvation through the means of the law or some other kind of law that perhaps you've come up with yourself, then, dear one, you are not a Christian. And Christ calls to you to repent and to come to Him and to receive His grace and His forgiveness and His life. But there are many Christians who find themselves wandering back into this old life, an old way of thinking, old patterns of living and thinking. And here Paul says, no, that's not the spirit God gave you. He gave you a spirit of adoption that you would be able to approach God and live before God even as Christ does because you are in Him and have as much right and privilege to approach God as Father as Christ does. We know that when a child was adopted in the Greco-Roman world, all former attachments were cut off. They were completely severed. The former rights of the biological parents or guardians were legally broken, and a new relationship was established with the father, the new father. And the child received all the rights and responsibilities and privileges of his or her new family. Beloved, the analogy is clear. In Christ, 
we are no longer slaves of sin and the law and the flesh, but we are adopted as sons of God and members of His redeemed family. This leads us to our second heading. In addition to having the freedom and privilege of sons, we have the Spirit-wrought conviction of, 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 of sons. We have the Spirit-wrought conviction of sons. That's our second point. Look at me at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, you'll notice that the first time Spirit is mentioned, it's with a capital S, and the second time it's mentioned, it's with a lowercase s. That's because it is referring, the first is referring to the Spirit of God, the second is referring uh, to our own spirit, our own consciousness uh, as uh, a believer. But what is the meaning here? Why is this so important for us to understand? Well, some, like one of my heroes, uh, the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, have taught that Paul is referring here to a kind of second blessing, a kind of second blessing, a movement of the Spirit that not all Christians enjoy a witness or inner testimony of the Spirit that only comes to select believers for God's intended purposes. But when we read the flow of this passage, it does not at all suggest that only some believers experience the inner testimony of the Spirit, but rather all believers. Now, once again, this doesn't mean that different believers don't deal with different measures of assurance. We considered that last week. But all believers have this inner testimony of the Spirit. All believers experience the inner witness of the Spirit's presence. But what exactly does this mean? What is this witness? Well, let me say what it, first of all, is not. It isn't a word of direct revelation. As if God's Spirit says audibly to you, you are a child of God now. No, it's not it, nor is it an experience confirmed by tongues speaking or other signs and wonders. No, this witness of the Spirit is something more subtle and also something much more glorious. Please hear this. The Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God is the Spirit's confirmation in our hearts of the truthfulness of God's gospel promises, of the truthfulness of God's gospel promises and the mysterious, spirit-wrought inner conviction that we are His redeemed sons. Now listen, I'm not saying that there is any kind of definable experience that takes place. Some want to do that. Some want to say, this is exactly what happens in this, this, this testimony of the Spirit with my spirit that I'm a child of God. But what we do know is that this confirmation in our hearts of the truthfulness of God's gospel promises is the witness of the Spirit with our spirits that we are children of God. It's the conviction that the gospel is true. And it's true for us by God's grace. The internal witness of the Spirit that we are sons of God is the belief or conviction that the gospel is true, that Christ is true, 
and that all the benefits of our union with Christ, including our adoption, are true. We believe it, and our belief is the evidence of the Spirit's internal witness and presence in our lives. Apart from the Spirit, then, we would still be enslaved to sin, the law, and the flesh, and would not be living by faith in Christ. This is why Paul says emphatically, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In the Phillips translation, he says this quote of this verse. It's basically a paraphrase. The Holy Spirit endorses our inward conviction that we are children of God. But this is not all Paul has to write about the believer's blessings and privileges of spiritual adoption as sons. He highlights our new status as heirs. And by the way, let me stop there for just a minute. Were there Christians in the early church who did not understand adoption and of the intimate relationship that they had with God through Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. There have always been Christians that have struggled. In fact, every Christian in this room at one time or another will struggle and will seek to further understand and have further depth of understanding in what it means to be a redeemed child of God, loved by God and full access to God in Christ. And so this is why Paul brings this teaching to remind us of God's truth, to remind us of the work of His Spirit in our lives, uniting us to Christ and giving us all the benefits as heirs. That's the third point, the inheritance of sons. Look at me again at verse 17. And if or since children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Dear believer, you who are united to Christ, you are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. No title in this world is more glorious than that. Whatever title someone may offer you, whatever position, whatever letters might be next to your name, nothing compares to that. And when standing before God at the judgment, all the other titles, all the education, all the, the trophies that have been won, all the accomplishments that have been made will be like rubbish in comparison to this title. Heir of God, fellow heir with Christ. In fact, the answer that you could give to the question, why should I let you into my heaven? And God's not going to say that, but if he did, you can say, because I am an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. I am united to Christ, and I've been sitting in the heavenly places with him already, spiritually, and now I go to do so in the fullness of my inheritance. You see, those who are adopted are given the full rights and privileges of sons. The apostle punctuates and builds upon this point that the believers in Rome are God's children adopted as sons by stating that they are, that we are, by grace through faith, heirs of God. And not just heirs of God, but fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. And he builds on this because 
someone might read an heir of God and think, it just can't be. And then you see, and fellow heirs with Christ say, well, oh yeah, I'm united to Christ. And so whatever position Christ has, I have in him. And so Christ is, is exalted and he's seated on the throne and God has blessed him with all this inheritance. And in Christ, we receive that same inheritance. Can it be that I, a sinner, can through faith in Christ not only be restored to fellowship with God, be adopted into his family, and furthermore, be declared an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. And the inheritance that we receive is not only the magnificent and eternal new heavens and the new earth and the full measure of joy in heaven for eternity with God's people. No, most importantly, the inheritance is the unmediated and perfect communion with God forever. He is our inheritance. God is our inheritance. He is our portion forever. And whatever we think about heaven, the first thought should be that I will be with God. Thomas Schreiner, commentator, states, quote, that the supreme benefit of the covenant with Abraham is not inheriting the land, but having God as one's God. Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What we learn here is that God is our ultimate inheritance, and we receive that inheritance as sons through our union with Christ. By grace through faith, we are sons in the Son. Robert Mounts writes, quote, How rich in significance is the fact that we are full members of an eternal family in which God is our Father and Jesus Christ our elder brother, end quote. Well, the section ends, you'll notice, with an unexpected condition of receiving our inheritance. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All this grace, and now we have this condition. Look what it says there in verse 17. And if, or since children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is God's word teaching us here? Now, it must be stated very clearly that Paul is not stating that believers contribute to Christ's redemptive sufferings. As if his atonement wasn't sufficient. As if we needed to complete what Christ started on the cross to secure our salvation and sonship. No, that's not it at all. In fact, to say so would be blasphemous. So what then does it mean that we must first share in Christ's sufferings before we are glorified with Him one day in the future. Well, it means this, dear ones. It means that our union with Christ necessarily puts us on the path that our Lord trod. That is, the path from suffering to glory, from humiliation to exaltation. When you are joined with Christ... 
you are joining with him in a life of suffering to glory, of humiliation to exaltation. That's what happens. It's like when you join a, a soccer team, a high-end soccer team or, or some other uh, sport that's lesser than soccer because soccer is the best. You join the team and you know if you're going to reach the glory of the trophy, you're going to have to suffer through preseason, through hills, through sprints, through three-hour practices, and, and so on and so forth. There's no glory without the suffering. When you join the team, you know that that's part of it. When you are joined to Christ and are united to Him by grace through faith, you are necessarily going to enter into the sufferings of Christ because Christ suffers for and with His church. What did Jesus say on the road to Damascus when Paul was riding along, getting ready to persecute Christians, and he knocked him off his horse, and he said what? Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting who? Persecuting me. Christ has such solidarity with his church that he describes Paul's persecution as persecuting Jesus. You see, our union with Christ necessarily puts us on the path that the Lord trod, a path from suffering to glory, from humiliation to exaltation. God's people, therefore, do not leapfrog over the suffering of this life especially as it concerns the persecution and ostracism and various difficulties associated with being a follower of Christ. It's why the health and wealth gospel is so wicked and subversive to true Christianity. Being a Christian does not provide an escape from the suffering of this evil age, and in many cases it intensifies it. This would have been true, of course, for the believers in Rome and across the Roman Empire in the first three centuries of the church. It's true for many around the world today in North Africa, the Middle East, and China. I would assume that Christians in these places who are being persecuted, in some cases even being crucified for their faith, are bringing to mind passages like this. Therefore, Paul is making clear to God's people that suffering, especially as it concerns persecution, is not evidence of God's absence in the lives of His sons, but a brief prelude to an eternity in glory. Moreover, it's the pattern of our Lord, that which we ourselves experience in union with Him. John Murray puts it this way, quote, God's redeemed children partake of the sufferings which Christ endured, and they are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. In other words, Christ will return when every bit of suffering of the people of God and every Christian, every one of God's elect are saved, he will return and he will bring us home. Paul touches on this same point in Colossians 1.24, quote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Dear Christian, this is God's word for you this morning. 
that whatever suffering you are enduring as a child of God, whatever afflictions you are facing, it is a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that you will receive in Christ. Romans 8, 18, the very next verse, which we'll deal with next time, God willing, Paul writes in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. So as we conclude, let me encourage you to live with spirit-filled faith and not in slavish fear. Live with spirit-filled faith and not in slavish fear. Please hear this, dear friend. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer under God's condemnation. You are no longer under the dominion and slavery of sin, the law, and the flesh. Christ died and rose for you. He lives and he intercedes for you right now in heaven. You've been set free and indwelt by the spirit of adoption as sons to live free of this slavish fear and to approach God as your dearest heavenly father who loves you beyond measure. Indeed, you have a father who always wants you near. He wants you to be near him more than you want to be near him. And I want to be near him. He wants to hear our prayers more than we want to pray them. This is the God we serve. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some would, would think that it's humble to not approach God's throne of grace with this kind of boldness. John Murray writes, the hesitation to entertain this confidence of approach to God the Father is not a mark of true humility. It's not a mark of true humility. True humility, true humility born of faith fosters confidence to draw near to our Father. And He wants you to. Whatever you may be going through, whatever sins you may have committed, whatever challenges you may be facing, God the Father wants His redeemed sons and daughters to draw near to Him with confidence, crying out to Him, Abba, Father. And so finally, remember that suffering with Christ now in this brief life means enjoying glory with Him for eternity. Whatever we may be going through right now as, as a Christian people around the world, whatever we may be called to face in the future, we need to remember our adoption as sons in the Son. We need to remember our heavenly inheritance, an inheritance which, unlike the things of this world, cannot be taken from us. And our inheritance is God Himself. But let us not put our focus on the inheritance and possessions of this world. Rather, with grateful hearts, may we keep our eyes on things above. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, must nor rust, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so may Christ be our treasure. May God be our inheritance. 
May the spirit of adoption be our comfort as we suffer in this world and joyfully anticipate the glory of the world to come. And may we share this good news with others. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel and for the richness of this passage which so gloriously proclaims the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to massage into our hearts by your Spirit the truth of this text as it concerns our status with you as adopted sons of the living God, sons in the Son, united to Christ, knowing that we can never be let go from Him, never cast out again, but only brought near and to spend eternity with you. We pray in Jesus' name.